Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Jason Palmer, an editor of Espresso, our daily briefing app, and you're listening to a special edition of Babbage, exploring issues of science and technology surrounding the U.S. election. Coming up on the program, security guru Bruce Schneier tells us whether we should be concerned about the possibility of a hacked election. If not the presidential election, the uh, elections lower down, the systems are very vulnerable, and if not this year, some year soon, there will be a hack, or at least there'll be enough evidence of a hack that we don't trust the results. Matthew Hindman, an expert in online campaigning, discusses the part big data is playing in this year's elections. What Trump has done, ironically, is make big data models work better than they have ever worked before. And could the inner workings of your brain reveal the way you're likely to vote? Political scientist Dr. Darren Schrieber talks to us about what clues neuroscience can give about someone's inclinations in the voting booth. Their behaviors looked identical, but the neurological mechanisms that were underpinning those behaviors were actually completely different. First up, the 2016 presidential election has been a series of firsts. It's the first time we've had euphemistic insults about tiny hands. He referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee you. A first for racially divisive infrastructure. We're going to build a wall. It's going to be built. Racial bans, misogyny, and even puppet theater. From everything I see, has no respect for this person. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet, no puppet. Heading into the final straight, we've had another unprecedented step. The White House recently accused Russia of hacking American systems to influence the outcome of the election. It sounds like the stuff of political thrillers, but it's not. Leaks of Democratic Party files have included Hillary Clinton's speeches and emails from the Clinton campaign chairman, John Podesta. So what's next? Is the U.S. election itself vulnerable to hacking? Our data editor, Ken Kukier, has been speaking to Bruce Schneier, security technologist and commentator, and a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Bruce, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let me first ask, how worried should we be about the results of the election? Could the result really be hacked or swayed in some way? It's a complicated question. Uh, I'm not worried that the results will be changed, but there's a lot of vulnerabilities and we should worry about hacking. And this is a big issue. If not the presidential election, the uh, elections lower down. The systems are very vulnerable. And if not this year, some year soon, there will be a hack or at least there'll be enough evidence of a hack that we don't trust the results. Okay. So what specifically are the vulnerabilities? There are really three parts that are vulnerable. The first one are the voter rolls. Every state, counties, lots of separate systems have roles of who's allowed to vote. Those are in computers, in databases, and they're vulnerable. We've had this year examples of hackers penetrating the systems in a few different states. We've had security researchers demonstrate how easy it is to delete someone or change someone in several states. The second are the election machines themselves. Since the 2000 election, 
that we had the Help America Vote Act, and a lot of money went to new machines. Unfortunately, they went to largely electronic touchscreen machines, machines without a paper audit trail. That means they're a computer and only a computer. And they are pretty much all vulnerable to different types of hacking. There's been research over the last decade and a half, lots of teams looking at lots of systems. They're all bad. So the machines themselves is a vulnerability. And then the third step is the tabulation process. Right? We go in, we, we vote, and then at the end of the day, all those numbers get collected and totaled and totaled again, and finally you get one grand total. That system is not very well secured. One of the things that worries me is that even the appearance of a hack is enough to throw the results in question. Now, Donald Trump has already laid the groundwork for throwing up that sort of suspicion by saying that he thinks the vote is going to be rigged. You see what's happening? The process is rigged. This whole election is being rigged. Is there any way to show the integrity of the vote in this election? Can we do anything now to help secure that so that we can demonstrate democracy in action? I mean, there are a lot of things we can do, but they're all ad hoc. Unfortunately, many states have these insecure machines. And so what we need to do now in the near term is put as much people and expertise on it as we can. So we can make up for an insecure machine by having people audit and people make sure that changes haven't been made. We can correct for an insecure registration process by printing the voting rolls now and not having people go up to a computer to prove they're eligible to vote. Now, we can put human controls in place that are kind of ad hoc, and that will convince experts. Long term, we need to secure the election. I mean, I think we should designate the election system as critical national infrastructure. In the United States, we have this designation for important things like the power grid. And really, my worry is less a presidential election and more local elections. We've already had several cases of local elections where the results didn't make sense. Either they were obviously invalid, right? You open up the machines and the vote is zero to zero, or someone gets a negative number of votes. There was one case where the machines accidentally switched the votes and the loser was able to convince a judge that she won by getting affidavits from the voters. This is a very local election. So you could sort of know who voted for who and the results were opposite. These things do happen. Most cases, they seem to be errors and not foul play. But foul play is possible and local elections get much less scrutiny. So there's an inherent tension between increasing the ease of voting through digital technology and these new vulnerabilities about the integrity of the vote. One way to resolve it, of course, is just to go back in time to polling booths and paper ballots. Do you think that we should? We definitely need paper ballots. We don't need paper-only ballots. The best way to vote is an optical scan machine. I happen to live in Minnesota, and we happen to use these machines. And it is a paper ballot. You fill in ovals with a pencil, and you take your paper ballot to a machine that scans the vote and then drops the paper into a lockbox. So you have the quick tally of a computer and you have the paper audit trail if there's a problem. So yes, paper ballots are the most secure. Now, there are usability issues and we have to address those. But doing that at the expense of the integrity of the election feels like a mistake. What about Internet voting? Problem is, I can't secure Internet voting at all. I mean, the computers are vulnerable. The networks are vulnerable. It is extraordinarily dangerous not only from hacking from people who are nearby, but hacking from people across the planet. 
you know, the internet voting is going to be no more secure than internet anything else. And that's pretty bad. I strongly recommend we do not allow voting over the internet. It is much too dangerous. Let me press you on this. If we can do online banking and use ATMs, why can't we vote? There's a key difference between online banking and voting, and that's anonymity. The thing about banking, when you go to an ATM machine, when you bank online, is the bank knows who you are. If there's a problem, the bank can figure out what happened and unravel the transaction and fix the problem. Voting is anonymous. I need to have a clean break between when you walk into the voting booth after having identified yourself as a registered voter and when your vote comes out. And that anonymity requirement is much harder and breaks a lot of the security mechanisms I can use to secure online banking. If votes didn't have to be anonymous, this would be easy. I could secure it. You can vote with a touchscreen machine. You can vote online. It doesn't matter. It's the anonymity requirement that adds that extra security need that makes a lot of my security defenses not work. And what about traceability? Is it the case that when there is a hack and there is a vulnerability that we can unwind the clock and identify you know, tracing it back to who the originator of the hack is? It really depends. There's a lot of attacks we could identify. There are a lot of attacks we can't. Often depends who we are. The NSA, because they can eavesdrop on a broad swath of the internet, can identify attacks much better than the FBI can, who doesn't have that espionage capability. If there's an attack against our election, there probably is a good chance we'll be able to identify the country it came from, if it came from a country came from an individual, much less likely to be able to identify who they are. Bruce, thank you very much. Thank you. Do you think the security of America's voting systems needs to be beefed up? Are we any better off than when chads dangled in Florida? As always, send in any thoughts, comments, or questions to radio at economist.com. Next, will you decide how to vote? Or has your brain already decided for you? A nascent area of research involves using neuroscience to try to unravel how people form their political opinions, and whether there are in fact neurological differences between those inclined to vote liberal or conservative. Dr. Darren Schrieber, professor of political science at the University of Exeter in Britain, has been involved in the field for a number of years. He spoke to us this week about a study he carried out looking at data gathered from gambling experiments on Democrats and Republicans. What we found was no difference whatsoever between the Democrats and the Republicans in terms of their behavior. They looked exactly the same. You can't go to Monte Carlo or to Las Vegas and see differences in, in terms of how liberals and conservatives gamble. But what was different were the brain regions that they were activating when they were doing the gambling tasks. So the, their behaviors looked identical, but the neurological mechanisms that were underpinning those behaviors were actually completely different. What we could see was there was a pattern of activation for people who were politically conservative in the amygdala. That's the part commonly associated with the perception of fear. And there was a pattern of activation for people who are more politically liberal in the insula. The insula is involved with interoception, the sense that allows us to feel our own feelings, that we're in pain, for example, or when our muscles are a little tired. And in fact, these differences were sharp enough that it allowed us to correctly classify whether someone was liberal or conservative with around 83% accuracy. Dr. Schrieber stressed that of course we shouldn't make sweeping inferences about voters of either persuasion, though it does seem like conservatives and liberals use different neurological mechanisms. We have seen from, from other data that there are differences in conservatives' risk perception. They seem to be more sensitive to, uh, to threat, to perceptions of loss, and they have a stronger disgust reaction. So another study had 
wired them up like you would with a lie detector test, and they were able to see that basically their electrical conductivity of their skin changes much more dramatically when they're encountering disgusting or startling images. But where does it all start? Are people born into certain political predispositions? Dr. Schrieber explains that experiments with twins suggest it's when we reach adulthood that things start to become clear. Two twins will become much more similar over the course of their life, but they're becoming more similar regardless of whether they're identical twins or whether they're fraternal twins, and that seems to be the result of an environmental effect. What's really interesting about that, though, is that when they leave home, all of a sudden it looks like genetics kicks in, and that upon leaving home, the fraternal twins become much more different from each other whereas the identical twins stay quite similar. And to the extent that the it indicates that about 40% of our political ideology is biologically heritable. So we've got then this really interesting puzzle where we have a, a biological predisposition, but it only manifests itself once we've left that environment in which we were raised. And so there's a lot going on in this story. It's not simply about genes or environment. It's really an interplay between them and also the choices we make, who we affiliate with, and the environment in terms of the ways that political parties are changing. However, one of the features of the human mind is that it's evolved to be open. The human brain is the result of a three million year process of, of a cognitive arms race, and that we've needed bigger and bigger, more powerful brains to allow us to live as political animals, to live as animals that are in these coalitions that are constantly and dynamically developing over time, and one of the consequences evolutionarily is that we have brains that are really, really flexible, that allow us to change and develop and to do so at a rate that's really remarkable at the epigenetic level, at the level of how genes express themselves. We're hardwired not to be hardwired. Dr. Darren Schrieber there from the University of Exeter. Now, widening the scope a bit from the individual voter, what part can big data and large-scale analysis play in the bitter race for the White House? And how much influence has it had this year? Cheryl Brumley, senior producer for Economist Radio, went to George Washington University in Washington, D.C. to speak with online campaigning expert Matt Hindman, associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs. Matt, you've been studying the role of the web and data in U.S. elections for over a decade now. In that time, we've seen in 2008 Obama become the first so-called web candidate, and then in 2012 he was considered the first big data candidate. In that time, how have you observed the use of data in elections changing? In 2004, the role of data in politics was comparatively primitive. And even just looking at the difference between 2004 and 2008, and the difference between how John Kerry did in Ohio and how Obama did in Ohio, you can really see the role of the voter file and the ability to target individual voters based on their party registration or on their demographic details. The performance that Obama managed to pull out of Ohio was most improved actually in the rural southern parts of Ohio, which are very conservative. And yet the Obama campaign was able to mine a lot of votes in that region of the state by going door to door every third or every fourth or every fifth door and mobilizing people who'd never been mobilized. The Trump campaign hasn't really utilized data in the same way, and yet Trump has made it this far. Doesn't this undermine the infatuation with big data elections? Absolutely not. Big data is, is a tool that you use to win close elections. It's not something that can totally change the political climate. At the same time, though, what Trump has done, ironically, is make big data models work better than they have ever worked before. 
that by polarizing people along observable characteristics, by their race, their ethnicity, their gender, campaigns are able, ironically enough, to target anti-Trump voters or, or pro-Trump voters better than they ever have before. And that, I think, is an underappreciated aspect of the election, that the more Trump talks about data, the more that he makes these inflammatory statements, the better the Democrats' models work. And over time, as big data technologies become more democratized and all candidates adopt them, will there still be ways to gain competitive electoral advantage? Or will the margin of difference and advantage become more narrow as a result? I think the short answer is this. Big data tools tend to favor Democrats in most races most of the time. And the reason for that is that people who are identifiably hardcore Republicans, they always vote. You don't need to mobilize them because they're going to vote anyway. But for many Democratic-leaning constituencies, particularly minority groups in certain areas, and particularly younger voters. These people are tough to mobilize. They really respond to treatments. And so it becomes much more effective for the Democrats because there's a lot of people who would vote Democratic if they showed up at the polls, but who don't vote on a regular basis. And last of all, is there a risk that citizen data used to win elections could be misused by new political leaders? Might leaders extract retribution from those who didn't vote in a certain way? Yes. <laughs> uh, so I do think we need to be concerned about the use of citizen data. Already, we have a lot of evidence that legislators are more likely to talk to people who donate to them. In fact, much more likely in some cases. We've got really strong evidence that that's the case, uh, and that affects people's political voice. That affects who gets heard, who gets listened to, who sets the agenda, and ultimately what laws get passed. In thinking about the, the internet and the role of big data, one main theme that we see over and over again is it lets people do things and be more efficient at things they were already inclined to do anyway. Sometimes that's positive and pro-social things, uh, and sometimes that's organizing around, you know, a white nationalist group or candidate. That these kinds of affordances that technology offers are in some ways dangerous because they're unleashing or making easier certain things that people were already inclined to do. And it's less the technology that we should worry about than those aspects of human nature or those political beliefs. Matt Hinman, thanks very much. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. Any comments or questions about this week's show, just email us, tweet us, write on our Facebook page, or even send in a good old-fashioned letter. We read it all. In London, this is The Economist. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.